G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. When we left off last week, we were starting to get some idea about the significance of numbers in Genesis 5. And we had a bit of an idea that there was some kind of relationship between the Genesis story and the Sumerian king list. We're going to continue looking at significant numbers as we go through the season. But for now, we're going to look at another potential factor in understanding Genesis 5. Yeah, that's right. We thought we'd look at something relatively easy today (laughs) and talk about the different manuscript traditions that exist among people loyal to our Heavenly Father. Now, most people are aware that the Old Testament was originally composed in the Hebrew language. And again, there would be a majority of people who are aware of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we know as the Septuagint, or you might see it abbreviated as the LXX. Not many people are familiar with a third textual tradition, which is called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And it wasn't until recently that we actually had a copy translated into English. There'd be even fewer people still who are aware that all three manuscript traditions give different readings of Genesis 5. That's that's pretty interesting. So what does that mean then for our understanding of the long ages of the patriarchs and the comparison with the Sumerian king list? Well, putting the king list aside for a moment, it's going to give us another question to answer around the authority of these different manuscript traditions. Because if the numbers vary from one text to another, then that's going to throw out any correlations or meaning imputed to those numbers. But I think the best way to demonstrate this is just to show you some of the raw data, and then you can see the effect that it's going to have on interpretation. So for listeners at home, if you get a chance to read your Bible along with me, you can do that while I read this. Instead of reading a translation of the traditional Masoretic text, which is what most Bible translations are based on, I'm going to read first the translation of the Septuagint. Then after that, I'll read from a translation of the Samaritan Pentateuch. So... Here's the Greek version of Genesis 5, obviously translated into English for this audience. This is Genesis 5 from verse 1. This is the book of the generation of humans. On the day when God made Adam, he made him according to the image of God. He made them male and female. He blessed them and he named their name Adam on the day when he made them. Adam lived 230 years and fathered a child according to his appearance and according to his image. He named his name Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 700 years and he fathered sons and daughters. And all the days of Adam that he lived were 930 years and he died. Seth lived 205 years and he fathered Enosh. And after he fathered Enosh, Seth lived... 707 years, and he fathered sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived 190 years, and he fathered Kenan. And after he fathered Kenan, Enosh lived 715 years, and he fathered sons and daughters. And all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And Kenan lived 170 years, and he fathered Mahalalel. And after he fathered Mahalalel, Kenan lived 740 years, and he fathered sons and daughters. And all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalalel lived 165 years, and he fathered Jared. And after he fathered Jared, Mahalalel lived 730 years, and he fathered sons and daughters. 
and all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And Jared lived 162 years, and he fathered Enoch. And after he fathered Enoch, Jared lived 800 years, and he fathered sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And Enoch lived 165 years, and he fathered Methuselah. Enoch was very pleasing to God for 200 years after he fathered Methuselah, and he fathered sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch was very pleasing to God and was not found, because God transposed him. And Methuselah lived 187 years, and he fathered Lamech. And after he fathered Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years, and he fathered sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah which he lived were 969 years, and he died. And Lamech lived 188 years, and he fathered a son. And he gave him the name Noah, saying, This one will relieve us from our works, and from the pains of our hands, and from the earth which the Lord God cursed. And after he fathered Noah, Lamech lived 565 years, and he fathered sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 753 years, and he died. And Noah lived 500 years, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, if you got the chance to follow along in your Bible, or perhaps you're familiar enough with Genesis 5 to have the passage fairly well preserved in your memory, then you'll have noticed some odd little details as we went through this genealogy. And we mentioned it earlier, but now you can actually look at it for yourself. We'll make our comparisons against the Masoretic text, which is what most of us will be familiar with, so we can talk about the differences in the Greek text from that perspective. The first five generations add 100 years before the birth of the son, and then reduce the remaining years to arrive at the same total age. The ages for Jared remain the same as the Masoretic text. Enoch's ages are also shifted by 100 years to arrive at the same total, with the statement that he pleased God for 200 years after the birth of his son, rather than 300. Hey, just quickly, how many watchers did it say descended to Mount Hermon in first Enoch, wasn't it? 200? Moving on. Six years are added to the life of Lamech at the time of Noah's birth, and 30 years are removed from Lamech's total lifespan. So those are just some quick observations. I'll have some concluding remarks on this a bit later, but for now, I want to take a look at the Samaritan Pentateuch. This time, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. That's because more than half of it is the same information as what you get from the Masoretic text. And there might be slight variations in wording, but for the purpose of analyzing the numbers of Genesis 5, which is what we're all about in this series of episodes. The first half of the chapter is identical to the Masoretic text. So now I'm going to read from the Samaritan Pentateuch, beginning from Genesis 5:18. And Jared lived 162 years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 785 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 847 years, and he died. And Enoch lived sixty and five years, and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived sixty-seven years, and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech six hundred fifty and three years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 720 years, and he died. And Lamech lived 50 and 3 years, and begat a son. 
And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah six hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were six hundred fifty and three years, and he died. And Noah was five hundred years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, so again, let's have a look at it in comparison to the Masoretic text. This time, Jared loses 115 years. Lamech is born 115 years earlier relative to Methuselah's birth. Methuselah loses 249 years. Noah is born 129 years earlier relative to Lamech's birth. And Lamech loses 124 years. They really are quite different, aren't they? So how do we know which one is right then? Well, I could be really cryptic here and say the answer is yes, all of these are right from a certain point of view. Chris, you're going to learn that many of the truths that we cling to depend greatly on our point of view. Yeah, thanks for that, Obi-Wan. But what I really want to know is which of these manuscripts is actually giving us the real hard data because Lamech didn't die at three different ages. So one of these is right and the others have to be wrong, right? Wrong. They're all right and they're all wrong. Oh, come on, man. What are you doing to me? You're baking my noodle. You're frying my brain. You're scrambling my spaghetti. I'm freaking out. What about truth, history, biblical inerrancy? What about inspiration? What about reality, man? What about reality? All right. Well, let's just take this puzzle a piece at a time and see what we can work out. If we have a look at the figures that we get from all three translations of Genesis 5, we can see some things that they all have in common. What we can see in this data is that there are definite strong correlations across the spectrum of biblical textual traditions. An important starting point when considering the biblical data is the use of a decimal system, which is indicated by the choice of words for each numerical value. The Hebrew text in general doesn't have words that explicitly deal with a base 60 numerical system. Things tend to be organized in tens and fifties and hundreds, which are all elements of a decimal system. Remember we talked about that sexagesimal system before, which was a terrible word that I don't expect you to remember. Uh, Particularly notable is the correspondence between the data for the first five patriarchs across all three traditions, with the only variance being the tendency of the Septuagint to shift the date of each patriarch further back in time from the perspective of the writer in comparison to the Masoretic text. The narrative shifts as we approach the second half of the genealogy and it becomes evident that late traditions had significant impact on the storytelling of all three, Hebrew, Greek and Samaritan scribes. We're going to see this as we continue examining the text. In general terms, the figures provided by the Masoretic text are considered by broad consensus to be the most reliable. The Septuagint figures seem to vary substantially because of the apparent tendency of the scribes to alter the age at the time of the firstborn. The argument is that this is done to push the timeline further back into the past because they wanted this to fit into the accepted chronology of the day according to Egyptian and Greek understandings of the world at that time. These adjustments had the added benefit of honouring the patriarchs whose ages were altered by granting them greater antiquity, which was a cultural norm at the time. If you couldn't make them older because you didn't want to change their actual age, then what you could do was make it so that they were born earlier in time. Only six of the ten patriarchs were given this special honour in the Septuagint. Noah's age is left intact in keeping with the other manuscript traditions, and the remaining three are left without honourable mention. As I said earlier, those three are Jared, Methuselah, and Lamech. 
The variations in the Samaritan Pentateuch are perhaps the most puzzling because those three patriarchs that I just mentioned seem to have ages assigned to them that bear no correlation to those in the other manuscript traditions. They've all had their ages reduced by varying amounts. What makes them special is that the numbers for all three of those patriarchs mean they would all meet their death in the same year. Now that sounds ominous. Yeah, it is. You know what? I found it slightly ironic when I was studying Lemek. As you look across the three manuscript traditions at all these numbers, you generally find correlations between different manuscripts for each of the patriarchs. They'll have something in common from one manuscript to the next. Until you get to Lemek and of the nine figures associated with him, three from each tradition, no two numbers are alike. Remember when I said about Lemek representing chaos? I thought that was quite funny. All the data for him just seemed to be a big mess. It was the hardest part of all to work out. So I mentioned that these traditions that diverge from the Hebrew text gave you really different times and dates. And you might be thinking, why would anyone change the ages of the patriarchs when we already know what they were from the earlier manuscripts? Surely they can't be making that many mistakes. Hey, Tim, I was just thinking, why would anyone change the ages of the patriarchs when we already know what they were from the earlier manuscripts? Surely they can't be making that many mistakes. And you'd be right, they're definitely not mistakes, mostly. But to answer that question, we need to remember that these chronologies are actually reverse engineered. They don't start from the day of Adam's birth and start counting forwards to get to the present day from their perspective. They don't? No, they don't. An awful lot of later commentators see it that way, though. Think about how we talk about things relative to the advent of Jesus Christ. We use AD, you know, Anno Domini, or Year of Our Lord, for times since the advent, and we use BC, before Christ, to talk about the time before then, and we count time backward from that fixed historical reference point. Don't give me any of that CE, BCE nonsense. What a ridiculous attempt at eliminating Christ from history. Oh, we're going to talk about the common era now, the era that is commonly reckoned around the time of the event, which was, uh, what exactly? Oh yeah, the advent of Christ, come on people. But I digress. These scribes who put the genealogies in the forms that we have them, they do the same thing. They start from their present day or some other fixed point and they work backwards. Okay, that makes, that makes sense. One challenge that we face as people coming from a low context background is understanding that reference point. Where, or when more accurately, is the point at which the countback clock is set? We don't have anyone in the Bible using the calendar we have, so our fixed reference point is not applicable. And that means that the events described are going to have a different internal significance because they're relevant to a different central event or point in time. So that's the next challenge, and that's going to mean that for narrative purposes, you're going to encounter different uses of chronology to communicate specific statements relative to that orienting point. And that's going to require adjustments to the data in order to convey the intended message. As an example, when the Samaritans told their version of the Genesis 5 story, they wanted to make sure that those three bad guys, Jared, Methuselah and Lamech, all got what was coming to them. So they engineered the genealogy to make sure that they all met a nasty end in the Great Flood. It didn't seem to bother the Samaritans if they changed the total age of some of those patriarchs. They've got a flood date and they're sticking to it and they're prepared to manipulate the genealogical data to maintain that chronology because it isn't just a means of saying we don't like those guys so they have to die a horrible death. It's also ironing out problems in chronological data. We have a fixed flood date but that clashes with the ages of these guys who if they really lived that long should have survived the flood and we have a well-established tradition that says you can't have that. 
Only eight persons, being Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, could make it to the other side of the flood. So you're saying that on the one hand, the scribes are reconciling timeline issues that arise out of putting stories together, and on the other hand, they're actually using that process to tell a new story in itself. Yeah, that's right. And this all comes together as a larger or cohesive narrative. But doesn't that fudge the facts? Like I said before, what about the reality of the historical situation? Yeah, we need to understand when we read these different genealogical traditions that they're not trying to adjust established history, like, for example, trying to change the date that the flood happened. Whether it actually happened when they say it happened is irrelevant. Instead, they just use that historical event as an anchor to attach their story to. This has the effect of changing the date at the other end of the narrative, which in this case would be the birth of Adam. But since nobody knows when that was, it doesn't really matter if it moves. That's relative to the rest of the story and not a fixed point that needs to be maintained for any particular reason. Well, unless you're a young Earth creationist. And it's not the point of the story anyway. Uh, by the way, that, that whole timeline in the Samaritan Pentateuch is based on time that they work out from the calendar established by the Book of Jubilees. They work everything out in 49-year cycles. Anyway, if all those dates and ages had to be strictly accurate, then we wouldn't be having this conversation about divergent manuscript traditions. Not only that, we would have thrown away every single copy of Genesis 5 ever written because they all diverge from original material in one way or another. As Michael Heiser used to say about chronologies, all of the systems cheat somehow. They're all doing their own thing for their own reasons. So you're going to go insane trying to make them all reconcile. It's a waste of time. And he said the same thing about eschatology as well, for the same reason. As I've said many times before, the point of genealogy is to tell a story that connects someone in the past to someone in the present with a lesson for the now. Or in the case of retelling an old story, it's to cast the later character or situation in a similar light to the earlier one. And along the way, the information that you include or leave out or tweak slightly is part of the storytelling process. The story that you're telling to your audience now is not the same story that was told back then when these events were current. And again, look at the trajectory presented by the genealogy. It's about the point we're moving towards, not the point we're moving away from. This is why ultimately Jewish literature tends to become apocalyptic in nature. Remember that these are ancient people and they don't have scientific concerns for accuracy or historicity the way that we do. The point being made isn't that these numbers are all 100% factual, set in stone, reliable numbers that you can count on to make a scientifically accurate chronology. That's a modern way of thinking. The numbers are part of a story that's being told. And the story is going to change depending on who's telling it and why. So I don't look at these different manuscript traditions and think of any of them as inferior to the others. The way I see it, they're using the same basic framework to tell different stories for their own reasons. Okay, so doesn't that raise a question about inspiration, though? Like which story is being told by God through the human author? Surely that's going to have to come into it at some point. That really is the million-dollar question, and because we don't have the luxury of being present at the time of writing, the only way we're going to figure that out is by careful scrutiny of the available data. Because if we start with an incorrect assumption, we're building a house of cards. And I've actually set up a bit of a house of cards as we've been talking just now, which is about to collapse under the weight of scrutiny. Let's have a look at the Masoretic text for a moment. The core of the genealogy seems pretty solid by comparison to the other translations. And linguistically speaking, we should be working with the most reliable version on the basis that we haven't had to translate out of Hebrew, as is the case with the Greek and the Samaritan translations. But even so, the Masoretic text shows evidence of manipulation. 
you are saying that the numbers preserved in our Bibles might not be the real historical numbers, but they are here in the text because they serve a storytelling purpose, just like they do in the other translations? Yeah, that's right. We need to keep in mind that it's not the historical facts that were inspired by the Spirit of God moving in the author of the text. It's the message being presented by the text. I have no doubt that God works providentially through the events that occur in space and time in order to get his message across. But ultimately, if we consider scripture authoritative, then we have to come back to the affirmations of scripture and not the scientific realities behind the text. Let's look at Methuselah first. Just like in the Samaritan version, Methuselah dies in the flood year. Now, it's not as blatant as the Samaritan. We have three guys all die at the same time, but it's still there. And the Greek translation actually agrees with the Masoretic on the numbers here rather than offering an alternative or trying to correct it. So it's probably an authentic number, but we're still going to have to ask ourselves about the significance of that timing later on. Lemek is different, though. Everyone notices Lemek's distinctive age of 777 years. We have a tendency to view this Lemek as superior to the other Lemek of Genesis 4 because we have this thing about the number seven as being godly or righteous or something. And as long as we still think that it's good to have that number associated with a person, then we're going to see him as a good guy. We're going to see him as the counter against the bad Lemek who was associated with vengeance instead of this holy triple seven. And isn't that a double standard? On the one hand, the first Lamech was bad because of 77-fold vengeance. Then the new Lamech comes along and we like him for having three sevens at his age. Yeah, the problem, and we talked about this last week, is that we've fallen for the trap of false association. We see the number seven and the way seven gets used of divine persons, like God. So seven is divine. God is divine. Seven is godly. God is good. Seven is good, but actually seven is not good. God is good. Seven is divine, but divine is not the same as good. Seven is divine or holy because seven is incomprehensible. Seven is a prime number, complex yet indivisible. Six represents humanity. Seven is more than human. Seven is something other, something above what we can comprehend. Seven is divine order, and that means the kind of order that we can't understand. We call that chaos. That's not disorder. It's a higher order. That's what seven represents. It's not a moral value. Seven isn't a sacred or holy number because it's good. It's holy because it's above our comprehension. It's different to anything we can comprehend. We have to remember that we can't conflate holiness and goodness just because God epitomizes both of those things. They're not the same. Yeah, that makes sense. But it is still kind of hard to shake off that association. I think we also have that sort of the bad guys are in Genesis 4 and the good guys are in Genesis 5, that kind of thing going on as well. Um, actually, while we're talking about Triple Seven, that reminds me, a while ago I went to see that old 80s Christian rock band, Striper. I've heard of them. I didn't realise they were still around. Yeah, 40 years and still going, mate. Absolutely legendary. Anyway, one thing that Striper have always done well, uh, well, except for that weird phase in 1990, but let's not talk about that, it's the use of symbolism as part of their identity as a Christian band. So they have a big triangle behind the band logo, which represents the Trinity. And sometimes they use the number triple seven. So of course I'm at the concert. You don't go to a concert without buying a t-shirt, right? So I get this striper t-shirt, which I'm proudly wearing. And on the back, it says to hell with the devil. And it's got a big triple seven across the shoulders. Just makes me wonder how many people wear that thinking the triple seven is representative of moral goodness instead of divine holiness. Anyway. So uh, how was the concert? Was it, was it good? 
Oh, yeah, mate, it was unreal. It was absolutely awesome. I went with a mate from church, and uh, while we were there, I ran into my bandmate, Vaughn Gregory, who was actually a guest on this podcast back in the first season. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Vaughn and I are one half of a Christian heavy metal band called Grave Forsaken, and if you've been listening to this podcast, you've already heard some of our music. Uh, if you like it, head over to graveforsaken.com and check it out for yourself. Anyway, getting back to Lamech, we find that when we examine the three manuscript traditions, some interesting things are going on. Let's look at his numbers from Genesis 5, verses 28 to 31 in all three translations. So if we compare the begetting age, okay, so when he has his son, in the Masoretic text, we have 182 years. In the Septuagint, we have 188 in the Samaritan Pentateuch, we have 53. If we look at the remaining years after begetting his son, in the Masoretic text, we have 595, in the Septuagint, 565, and in the Samaritan Pentateuch, 600. And if we look at the total years of Lamech's life, we have 777 in the Masoretic text, the Septuagint gives us 753, and the Samaritan Pentateuch gives us 653. Okay, so the first thing we notice is that the Hebrew and Greek figures are fairly close to one another, and the Samaritan numbers are way off. I mentioned before that the Samaritan text was manipulated specifically to ensure that Lamech and Jared and Methuselah all die together. So that's going to explain those variations. We'll, we'll talk later about why everybody wants them dead, but it's interesting when we consider the total age of Lamech, the number of 777 appears to be artificially constructed, given what we know about this number as a highly symbolic value. But is that appearance enough to be able to make that judgment? What if it's actually a real number? Yeah, well, uh, what, what isn't immediately apparent until you take a moment to look at it is that both the Hebrew and the Samaritan figures for Lamech's total age are derived from the figure found in the Greek text. Okay, so here's how it works. The Hebrew text uses the hundreds from the Greek text. So they've taken the number 753. They've retained the number 7, as in 700, and they've changed the rest to suit their story because they really want to drive home that number seven thing, so they get 777. The Samaritan text uses the 5-3 as found in the Greek text, but they've changed the hundreds to suit their story because they want to make sure that he dies in the flood according to their established timeline. This figure, like Paul Lamech himself, has also been manipulated for narrative purposes. So what we can see is that the original can be found in the Greek text. That provides the number, which is the basis for the other two translations. That leaves only the discrepancy between the age at the birth of the son, the birth of Noah, between the Greek and Hebrew text. There's a difference of six years. And again, we have evidence of manipulation of the data in order to avoid a chronological inconsistency. And the fact that the Greek text proves to be the central anchor for the data here should be raising red flags about our assumptions of the other translations. If we're going to say that Lamech lived to be 777, and we know that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came, then we have to make some changes. Because in the original version, Lamech was 188 years old at Noah's birth. That makes Lamech 788 years old at the time of the flood. But we've already decided that we want Lamech to be 777 years old. And because we want to keep that there for the purposes of our story, we have to shift Lamech's age at Noah's birth and bring it backward so that he's not still alive when the flood comes. By changing his age to 182 years at the birth of Noah, that moves the date of the flood 
to 782 years after Lamech was born. And since he only lives to 777 in this version of the story, that means he's been dead for five years by the time the flood happens. Now, you could look at that and say, well, why didn't they leave his age at 753? Which it is according to the Greek text. But then we don't get our lovely triple seven, which is what our Jewish audience really wants in there. So here's where it gets interesting. If we consider the Masoretic text accurate on the numbers, with the exception of Lemex data, which we take from the Septuagint, we find that the correlation between total years seen in the Sumerian King List and the Genesis 5 genealogy, which we've been talking about in the previous two episodes of the podcast, is quite compelling because that gap between the rounded totals becomes even narrower and makes that correlation even more striking. We're talking about a margin of error of one year. Given that people don't usually have their sons on their own birthdays, a margin of error of only one year is practically nothing. And that comes back to the question that you asked at the top of the show, Chris. The different manuscript traditions began with a set of numbers that had a strong association with the Sumerian king list. However, over time, they made changes to the formula for narrative purposes. And only through a careful analysis of the numbers are we able to reconstruct and establish that. By the way, that means we could also just take the Greek numbers as a whole, and it still works. The fact that the different manuscript traditions place a different level of importance on certain data sets provided in the text is highly indicative of some awareness that certain elements in the text had a shared significance, while other elements were less sacrosanct, perhaps introduced later, and were fair game for narrative manipulation. The clear trend is that the total age of each patriarch was seen as the most important data set. This is the only one that correlates with the Sumerian king list, and the only translation that deviates from a high degree of consistency on those numbers is the Samaritan Pentateuch. And I'm not saying that it's the Sumerian correlation that makes it important, or that it's only the Sumerian material that's authoritative, because I don't think we have evidence of that at all. But what I am saying is that there was a clear tradition established that those numbers were so well known that you wouldn't interfere with them because of their value in shared storytelling. And then, of course, the Samaritans have got their own story to tell, so they're going to change it. You'll notice also the high degree of consistency between the three Bible translations that exist across the first five generations in the list. Not only does this indicate common source material, but it also suggests that any necessary manipulation of the timeline was to be done from the perspective of the scribe, looking back from more recent times with the aim of preserving as much as possible of the earliest material. It's only the later generations that feature variations in the Hebrew and Samaritan versions. Of course, the Greeks have apparently inserted extra time between generations all the way back to Adam because apparently they needed to get a lot of extra time into that timeline. And a similar trend can be observed in the Sumerian king list where it's only the last two generations in the list that have different signs indicating small numerical values that were required to make up the desired total figure. If you're gonna pay with the exact change, eventually you're gonna to have to pull the coins out of the purse. So that's what was going on there. Remember that the Sumerian king list probably had its numbers originally lost and repopulated by a scribe who was only working with a given overall total for the eight names in the list. So why do we have the age at the birth of the firstborn? And why do certain traditions feel the need to manipulate those numbers? Okay, so the first thing to notice is that since we've brought the Sumerian king list into the discussion, we observe that there's no age provided for the birth of the firstborn. Two reasons. Firstly, it's not a biological succession or a genealogy. You'll notice how it talks about kingship moving from one city to another. Secondly, they're not using the king list as a means of fixing the calendar because these things are in different places. Some of their reigns may have been concurrent, that is, at the same time, in different cities. 
there's a particular chronology being preserved in the Hebrew text, using those ages to set the gaps between each generation in order to provide a fixed timeline. And that raises the question of exactly what chronology the Hebrew authors are presenting. Whatever it is, we might assume that it was a chronology that was important to the Hebrew people before the different traditions arose in subsequent translations. Most commentators would not say that these numbers were edited by the Masoretes at some later stage, except in the case of Lamech, who had his numbers tickled sometime after the Septuagint was written in the early 2nd century BC. At any rate, that wasn't a massive shift in the timeline, and I've already mentioned several times that the Greeks apparently took the liberty of changing these ages in order to pad out the chronology for political reasons. And once again, we see that the Samaritans didn't mind making changes to that data set either, because they have this story to tell in which three of the bad guys in the genealogy all meet a grisly fate in the Great Flood. As for the number of remaining years between the birth of the firstborn and the age at which they died, those numbers are really just there to show the mathematics of the timeline and to reinforce it. Remembering what we said earlier about how biblical chronologies work, we have to assume that these periods of time were arranged in reverse chronological order from a fixed point in time. And again, that brings us back to the question of what that point actually was. Lloyd Bailey seems to think that it was the inauguration of the second Hebrew temple, but he's working on the Masoretic text alone. I think we might need to dig a little deeper, but before you jump there in your mind, let me assure you that I don't think that it points to Jesus. That might be a bit jarring to our Christian sensitivities because we'd much rather see a timeline that leads to Jesus, but we have to keep reminding ourselves that Jesus was not some known point on the horizon from the perspective of an exilic or post-exilic audience, except for those who understood the prophet Daniel, but we'll talk more about that later. So that's all, all well and good, but what's going on with this marriage inversion? Why is their timeline so different from the one in the Hebrew and Greek traditions? I understand that they have a story to tell, but what is that story? Well, I'm so glad you asked because this is fascinating. Here's an interesting little factoid for you. If you take the date at which the Second Temple was inaugurated and you subtract the difference in the total timelines presented in Genesis 5, according to the Samaritan Pentateuch, you end up with a date that coincides with the beginning of the Judean-Babylonian War in the year 601 BC. What that means is that for the Samaritans, the Great Flood represents the onset of the Babylonian destruction of Judea. And that means the Samaritans are painting the Judeans as the three bad guys in the genealogy who all get wiped out in the Great Flood. You see, it wasn't until after the Babylonian captivity that the Samaritans became an independent group in their own right and settled to the north of Judea. And part of the way that they've legitimized their separation from the Jews and established their authority of their own manuscript tradition is by using the story of Genesis 5 as an illustration of judgment against the Judeans, who they're now distinguishing themselves from. In the Samaritan mindset, it's the judgment of God upon the Judeans that is illustrated by the destruction of the wicked in the Great Flood. And that leaves the Samaritans open to interpret themselves as the righteous survivors of the flood and by extension the inheritors of all the good stuff that was passed down from pre-flood times going all the way back to Eden. It also means that since the Babylonians destroyed the first temple and the second one is effectively snubbed by the reorientation of the timeline in the mind of the Samaritans, the only logical alternative for the proper worship of God is to go back to Mount Gerizim rather than Jerusalem. And that really is the central thrust of the Samaritan Pentateuch, to the point where they've even inserted the commandment to worship God on Mount Gerizim into the Ten Commandments. 
So what that tells us is that the manipulation of the Genesis 5 timeline seen in the Samaritan Pentateuch is oriented around convincing people that Solomon's temple was idolatrous and worthy of judgment, and the second temple is illegitimate, and the cult oriented around Mount Gerizim is legitimate because worship at Gerizim came before all the sin and idolatry that led ultimately to the exile. So there you go. That's why the Samaritans tinkered with Genesis 5. Incidentally, they also corrected their overall timeline to some extent later on in Genesis 11, but that's a story for another time. That is amazing. It certainly is, but I should point out that the timeline presented only works if we take into account the chronology presented in the Book of Jubilees. Anyway, I think we've covered enough in this episode to be able to understand that the three different translations of Scripture all provide different numbers in the genealogy of Genesis 5. And we've also been able to show that the correlation with the Sumerian king list is important. I think it shows very clearly that the Babylonian numbers were grossly inflated in order to give themselves a greater claim to antiquity, which was culturally important in the ancient Near East. It also shows that there was a very real genealogical connection between the first man and the flood hero, according to scripture. But what we can't yet establish firmly is why there are differences between the other biblical translations. And it looks like we're out of time here, so we're going to have to put a bookmark in this episode and pick it up next week. But I just thought this whole episode was fascinating and I had no idea about this conspiracy among the Samaritans to change the Bible for their own purposes. I'm certainly looking forward to finishing this two-part episode next week as part of a four-part series on our introduction to Genesis 5. Yeah, it's been pretty wild so far, and don't go anywhere because the next part of this is just as intriguing. We haven't finished dealing with conspiracies yet. There's more? Yeah, when we pick it up next week, we're going to be talking about the conspiracy of the Masoretes and what they did to Genesis 5 in order to tell their own story. Wow, it just keeps coming. Well, you heard it right here, folks. Next week is going to be awesome, and hopefully we will get to the bottom of this mystery around the true numbers of Genesis 5 what that means for the age of the patriarchs and how that should influence our reading and understanding of Genesis 5. Don't miss it. What a tangled web of conspiracy and intrigue we have uncovered here and some amazing theological messages and I thought genealogies were supposed to be boring. Anyway, I think that's about enough for this episode. We haven't got time for Q&A this week, but it will definitely be back next time. We'll see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. If we're going to say that Lamech lived to be 100...
if we're going to say that Lemek lived to be one, if we're going to say that Lemek lived to be seven hundred and seventy-seven editions, and the remaining three are left without, <clears throat> let's try that again. Oh, he's back on the nog, everybody. Mm. Inflation pressures notwithstanding, so they've almost doubled the price. Wow. I will persevere. The fact that the different manuscripts. Yeah. Did I tell you we have a new dog? No. So some weeks ago we got a um, Border Collie Cross Golden Retriever. Right. Um, who is four years old. And his name is Kit. He came to us because the lady that owned him passed away suddenly. Oh. And the family couldn't accommodate the dog. So we took him on. And the first week was pretty stressful because we already have a little dog, little Max. And Max was a bit put out. Yes. Um, but, but he came around and um, they're, they're good friends now. My kit um, isn't real sure about me because before he came to be with the lady who had passed away, he had previously been owned by somebody else and it was a man who really mistreated the dog. Right. So men are bad mm. and I'm a man, so kid doesn't really want to be around me. However, he kind of softened the other night when we had a big thunderstorm and I came out to comfort the dogs at like 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> Bucketing down with rain, like a, a massive thunderstorm basically just stopped on top of our house and shook the foundations. Wow. And um, and then one of our fuses tripped. And so I'm outside checking the fuses and everything, you know, in my underwear in the rain at 1.30 at night. And then I'm out the backyard calming the dogs down. <laughs> what a man. And, um, and and Kit finally decided that he was more frightened of something else than he was of me. So I came over for a pat and everything, and he's just starting to come around now, I think. <laughs> no, yeah, that's lovely. I, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> as long as I continue to be less scary than a thunderstorm, I might have a chance of uh, establishing a nice relationship with this dog. Nice. <laughs> 777 